Welcome to Inside the Hut. I'm your host, Brooke Pollock, founder of Hut Capital. Inside the Hut is a podcast that talks with leading blockchain venture capital investors to dive deep into their firm, strategy, and approach to a complex space at the forefront of innovation. You can find this and other episodes on Spotify and other podcast players or on our website at www.hutcapital.com. The content of each episode of Inside the Hut is for informational purposes only and should not be taken as legal, business, tax, or investment advice, or be used to evaluate any investment or security and is not directed at any investors or potential investors in any Hut Capital fund. Please note that Hut Capital and its affiliates may also maintain or be considering investments in or related to the companies, funds, assets, or strategies discussed in the podcast. For more details, including a link to our investments and related disclosures, please see www.hutcapital.com. Welcome, everyone, to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. Really excited to have with us this week, Michael Anderson from Framework Ventures. Michael and his co-founder, Vance, have a quite unique background coming from really deep in the DeFi space before building Framework into a much broader and one of the most prominent blockchain venture firms today. So really excited to have Michael join us. Thanks, Michael. No, thanks for having me. All right. So to get started, would love to just hear about your own background and kind of how you came to be where you are today. For sure. Yeah. Taking it all the way back, I started my career working in traditional technology companies, mostly on the product side, worked at Dropbox for a few years, building more enterprise product. I spent a few years at Snapchat building consumer product. All the while, both Vance and myself were kind of ensconced within the crypto ecosystem from 2013 to 2017 and kind of followed the industry on a nights and weekends basis. Really had a fun time investing in some companies, really kind of following the progression of the technology. When Ethereum launched the first network in 2015, that's where the light bulb moment clicked. And it was like, okay, this smart contract technology is now a platform for developing applications. And then in late 2017, both Vance and I saw what was going on with CryptoKitties and the fact that there was now a consumer application and non-fungible tokens And that's really kind of where we said, okay, it's time to stop following this from the sidelines and actually jump into the ring. Vance and I built a company called Hashleets, which was digital collectible and NFT platform for professional athletes. And it was something very much akin to Top Shot, if people are familiar with that concept. It was about two years before Top Shot launched, and I'm convinced there's no bad ideas in Web3 or entrepreneurship. There's maybe just bad timing. But had a lot of fun building it, took a lot of arrows running up the hill, trying to build it, trying to launch it, trying to scale it. We had a license with the NFL, and that's another interesting side story. But that concept, that company got as far as it could for the time in 2018 and ended up selling it. But really, kind of the thesis for framework was born out of that experience. In 2019, there wasn't a form fit venture fund who was going after the Web3 space at the early stage. When we were raising money for Hashleets, you were talking to people about tokens, and there's this concept of NFTs and obviously company building as well. But nobody really was able to put all of that stuff together in a way that we felt that there needed to be. And so Framework's basic thesis is to be the most dominant early stage venture firm for the Web3 crypto ecosystem. Awesome. So it sounds like you and Vance knew each other from even before Hashleys. How did you guys get to know each other originally? We were roommates in Los Angeles for a few years. We moved up to San Francisco to start Framework together and live together there. We got connected. My roommate way long time ago was one of Vance's fraternity brothers. So we had a ton of mutual friends. And yeah, we became fast friends and then partners. So we go way back. 
Okay, awesome. So framework, you gave kind of a quick overview, but what does the firm look like today? And in terms of the strategy, is there within the Web3 space, like an overarching thesis that kind of guides how you operate? Or how do you think about that? Yeah, so we started with a really small fund, about $14 million in 2019. And the way that we think about it is we want to be the best partner to founders at any stage of the capital structure. And what I mean by that is you could have an equity-based company, you could have an equity-based company and also build a token, or you could be a totally decentralized protocol that's just getting off the ground. We want to be the best partner for all of those opportunities. So we started with Framework 1 in 2019. DeFi was just a twinkle in the sky at that point. We sort of took the entire fund, and I think we were one of the few that did this in 2019 and said, this is going to be the thesis for this fund. And it worked. Synthetics, Aave, Chainlink, Curve, Wi-Fi were some of the big investments that we made out of that fund. Most of those were decentralized protocols, hence DeFi. And some of the companies that we invested out of that fund were Zapper and Slingshot, which are some of the most widely used DeFi company products today. And really, that fund was small, but it really kind of made up for it in just what the growth of the ecosystem saw. We've since raised two subsequent funds. The second fund we raised was in April of 2021, expanding the aperture lens from just DeFi, actually going back to some of the things that we did with Hashleets, with NFTs and social crypto, we really kind of saw the inkling of what games could be in 2021 and some of the games that were being developed in that period of time. And that led us into Fund 3, which we launched in April of 2022. The three main categories that we've identified that we're investing in now are DeFi, because we feel like that's the backbone of what blockchains enable. The thesis is really simple. If you were to build any of the financial services products that exist today from the ground up with blockchains as the core bedrock technology, they wouldn't look and feel like the companies that we see today. And so this new technology enables new business models and new companies to be formed. Games, we feel like, is going to be the consumer adoption arc that brings millions of or tens of millions of people into private key ownership. And whether they know it or not is one of the beautiful parts. And infrastructure, we're investing in things that speed up, scale up, give more privacy, give more functionality to these developers who are building these concepts because we're still so early in the maturation of this industry. The infrastructure is really one of the things that has held back a lot of these application categories because it's too expensive, there's not enough throughput. And so we're actively investing in anything that helps with that. Really, from a firm perspective, I would say, we like to do, and other firms have different fund structures, I would say, whether it's open-ended, closed-ended, work closed-ended funds. We take a multi-year perspective with any of the funds that we raise, and we have a pretty wide array of possibilities of what we can invest in. And we don't do growth funds. We don't do opportunity funds. There's one fund that we invest out of for a year or two or potentially three. And whatever we think is going to be the most opportunistic things for us to be able to invest in at that period of time is going to be what that fund invests in. So in the first fund, like I said, it was a lot of DeFi tokens. Second fund, we kind of expanded across equity and tokens. And the third fund is a lot of the same. Okay, makes a lot of sense. In terms of the fund structure, just having the single close-end fund, you know, doing whatever you guys believe is most interesting. Has it been tempting to deviate from that and like have a liquid fund or things like that or not so much? It's not tempting in the sense of we want whatever the most high value things can be. So Web3 changes rapidly on a month by month, quarter by quarter basis. Things are going to become 
new subcategories, new submarkets. And we talked about it in terms of dog years. It's like 7x the speed of what any other technology industry is moving. And so for us, having the flexibility, when we start the fund, we have ideas about what we think is going to be the main subcategories or submarkets of places to invest. But it changes over time. We launched this fund 18 months ago. I'd say a lot of what we identified from the outset has held true and is now actually becoming a popular narrative, maybe before we were a little ahead of it. But we need to have the flexibility because it may be something where Luna crashes three weeks after you launch the fund and liquid opportunities become massively undervalued relative to the private deals that you're seeing in the market. And if you're stuck trying to do just venture out of one fund and liquid out of another, it's difficult because you're going to bias towards one fund versus the other. So our approach, especially in the early days of this industry, is really just to have one fund with the flexibility to say, we can do liquid, we can do private deals, we can do seed, we can do series A, we can do series B, whatever it may be. Those are kind of the ways that we think we can operate best as everything is ever changing. Yeah, makes sense. And yeah, actually curious to dig into the whole liquid versus liquid side of things. But before we get back to that, you guys started in, as you alluded to, quite heavy in DeFi with the initial fund. It's a broader strategy today. But how do you feel about investing in DeFi in today's world, in particularly given the regulatory environment in the US? Yeah, I mean, if we look at most of our founders, I would be hard pressed to find a single founding team that is a DeFi founding team that's based in the US. And that's an unfortunate fact. And we're hopeful that there's positive movements on the regulatory front over the next 18 months. I know we've gotten close through the House and we'll see what the Senate does, but there are bills that are being drafted, which would be seminal opportunities to shape the regulatory landscape for this industry. Meanwhile, there's positive movements in terms of MICA in the EU. There's positive movements in Hong Kong and Korea and Japan that just pull these founders in those directions more so than I've seen in any other industry. And even with our first fund, some of the biggest successes that we had, Synthetics, Ave, Curve, all of those founders are non-US and not based in the US either. And so DeFi has just from the outset always been a global phenomenon. I would love it for us to be able to walk down the street here in San Francisco and look at a ton of our portfolio companies' offices and go talk to them in person. But in reality is, for the time being, at least we got to hop on a plane to be able to do that. Yeah. When that day does come, it's going to be glorious. So definitely look forward <laughs> to that as well. <laughs> exactly. So back on the framework side, I'm going to quote something from your website. I guess there's a blog post that you guys had put up a little while back, but curious to get your thoughts here. So it says, the rest of the team is mostly engineers, which was speaking to the non-investment team, focused on running infrastructure, staking, and participating in DeFi markets. If you have used crypto in the past few years, there's a strong chance you have interacted with the framework. So this is different, let's say, than your traditional kind of venture fund where you write a check and maybe help operationally. Can you kind of speak to what that means from your perspective, what that activity looks like, and also kind of curious how that's evolved over time? Yeah. So this is a concept that we started Framework with from the ground up, and we call it Framework Labs. And Framework Labs serves a number of different purposes one thing that we identified pretty early on is to be able to be advantaged in the space, not only from getting the best deals, but also making sure that those deals are successful, is being able to participate in these ecosystems. They're decentralized financial networks. Whether that means staking the core native asset to participate in governance, whether it means staking the core native asset to participate as a validator or as a participant in the network, depending on what it may be, or it means taking dollar-based capital off of a balance sheet and being able to put it in to liquidity pools to help bootstrap liquidity. Like all of these things are advantages that 
a traditional venture model is just very, very handicapped in being able to participate with. And there were a couple of instances of us seeing these opportunities and not wanting to not participate, not just from an LP perspective, but also just to help these ecosystems bootstrap and grow. So Framework Labs has grown, it has changed, it has morphed over time. But really the concept is how can we roll up our sleeves, get knee deep into the ecosystem, either from a governance perspective or a participation perspective that doesn't just include weekly calls or operational due diligence and help, but it's actually us putting assets into these ecosystems. DeFi works perfectly for that. They all need liquidity to bootstrap themselves. Games, it's going to be interesting to see what that advantage position will be. We haven't gone out and started an esports team yet, and we haven't done a ton of live games and content marketing around the games that we've been backing. But those are things that we think about. Governance design and token economic design are things that we have in-house just with the team and the teammates that we have here at Framework. Yeah. You mentioned starting esports team. Is that something that you seriously are considering? <laughs> no, no. It's only top of mind because I just saw Alluvium announce a partnership with Team Liquid and I thought that that was pretty cool. But it's crazy ideas like that, that we've batted around before. And it's probably not best position for Framework Labs to go off and start an esports team by any means. But maybe it's like hosting LAN parties and open gameplay and ways that we can be beneficial to the ecosystem and not just financial capital. Got it. Makes a lot of sense. So as you guys grew framework to cover the categories besides DeFi. I, mean, I think infrastructure is relatively uncontroversial, kind of underlies most activity that happened in the space. There's been a lot of value created in that category over time in a relatively quite a proven way. In the gaming space, that's a very different category. How did you guys decide that that was a category you wanted to spend a lot of time and attention on and kind of become a core part of the strategy? Yeah. So as most things do in these ecosystems, it's through the people that you meet and sort of the entrepreneurs that you get to spend time with. We were very deep within the synthetics ecosystem, which is a protocol that was started by Kane Warwick. He's the oldest of four brothers. His three younger brothers are the co-founders of Alluvium, which is an investment across funds two and three for us. But really seeing the power of and the design that they had into building a Web3 native game really kind of jump-started our perspective into what this ecosystem could be. And it comes down to a couple of things. The first is there's not really a much bigger market in the world than digital gaming. Three billion people play games every single month. There's more revenue generated from digital games than music, movies, and art combined per year. And it's growing rapidly. What also happens within the broader macro gaming market is that there's these platform shifts that happen as new tech-enabled products are embracing gaming. The major shift from console to PC, then from PC to mobile, each brought about major game mechanic changes that frankly, just grew the size of the pie massively. And right now, something like 60% of the revenue that's generated is actually mobile games. And that's net new to the PC and console gaming industry that we've seen from decades past. So we're massive markets, massive opportunities. And when we think about what could a blockchain enable as a new tech platform for digital gaming, the micro side of it is, okay, if you have two games and the gameplay and the game models are exactly the same, the graphics, the design, the character development, the storyline, everything is the same, one of them has ownership embedded within it and the other one doesn't. Basically a PC game versus a blockchain enabled game. Most people intuitively are going to choose the one that has ownership. We've seen some of these ideas come about with Axie Infinity 
and the craze that was the fall of 2021. I would actually describe that as more of a random number generator attached to a token distribution model. It wasn't fun to play. But what we're seeing now with games, and frankly, there's not that many of them that have the opportunity to be in the place that they are right now, because these games take tens of millions of dollars to develop. It's multiple years. So first off, if you're going to be a game developer that's launching in the next 12 months, go back three years and start then. Also raise more money than you'd be able to raise right now. And then it also takes the marketing and distribution that you just wouldn't be able to find in like a traditional venture investment model. It's super capital intensive. But if you have incentive models and incentive loops that hypercharge that growth through a native token, that's a novel concept that we haven't seen before. And NFTs as representations of in-game assets and characters is also something that we haven't seen before. There's still so much to be solved in terms of full economy design. I would say the game mechanic that is the representation of the blockchain ecosystem. One thing we talk about is like what's going to be the candy crush moment for blockchains. As soon as everybody saw Candy Crush on mobile, it was like, oh, okay, I get it. It's like fast casual. That's the type of game that's going to take over the world in terms of mobile. And then the third is we haven't had the infrastructure and services to prevent one thing that we call the wallet wall. It's when you sign up for a game, you need to be able to enter a username and password. You need to be able to have just an easy, seamless onboarding experience. Maybe you've got to pay 10, 15 bucks for the game for a season pass, as is traditional in, in PC gaming but you're not buying these NFTs for thousands of dollars just to be able to play the game. The economy design, the wallet wall, the infrastructure, all of that is stuff that has been solved over the last 18 to 24 months. So we saw that trajectory happening over the last two years. And this is just a recognition of that. And, and frankly, 2024, I think, is going to be the year of Web3 gaming. Yeah, that's really exciting to hear. And you mentioned Alluvium had some big news recently with part of their game ecosystem launching the Epic Game Store, to the degree that you're familiar or can speak to, was that a pretty difficult thing to get into place and to get them into Epic? Or curious if you can speak to that at all? It's huge. It's not like launching an app on the App Store where you just have to abide by the guidelines and they kind of give you a check mark and you can launch it. Epic and any of the consoles especially go extremely deep in terms of the gameplay, the design, to make sure that they only have really high quality games in these ecosystems. They don't want to dilute the Epic Game Store. So that's a huge point of recognition for the development that's happened from that team over the last three years. Frankly, I think most people will find this beta to be fun, engaging, highly strategic, also hard, which is something that we haven't seen yet in a Web3 game. And I would also think that as we start to see some of these play types and some of these game models come about, other entrepreneurs who are close or in the space are going to look and see how these games launch and start to build the playbook around that as well. So Epic, just as a backdrop, they actually do support and promote blockchain games. There are a number of others that are in the, they actually have a blockchain games category within their store, but it's one of the few platforms that does. And so I think as we see more of these blockchain enabled games launch, other platforms that are aside from Epic, maybe some of the consoles, they'll start to support it as well. Okay, cool. I actually didn't realize that Epic had their own like blockchain gaming section of the store, so I'll have to check that out. So one of the categories that's been getting a lot of attention recently is kind of like tokenization, real-world assets. Is that a category that you guys have spent much time in or looked at a lot of opportunities in? Yeah. Frankly, I hate the term real-world assets. <laughs> but I mean, what we can really call it is traditional financial assets that we're tokenizing. And going back to, I think, something I said earlier around DeFi, 
if you were to build BlackRock from the ground up, if you were to build DRW from the ground up, most of the financial institutions that we'd be able to name now, they would be built in a way that has a blockchain element on the back end, whether it's for compliance, auditability, or just frankly, ease of distribution of assets and management of assets. These antiquated databases have been built up over decades in these institutions because they were started in times when mainframes were the only technology available. And they've upgraded and changed since then, but they're always going to be a generation behind. So there is an element of, can we build new financial institutions from the ground up with blockchain as the back end? And real-world assets is a representation of how we can compete on an apples-to-apples basis, the same products and services that they're delivering to customers today, but maybe it has a lower cost structure because it has a more seamless and enabled blockchain element on the back end. And it doesn't require a team of IT specialists to be able to run that institution. The other side of real world assets, which I think is interesting, is we're putting things on chain that actually make money. There's about three and a half billion dollars of treasuries that exist on chain right now, earning four and a half to five and a half percent. The things about DeFi protocols and the maturation of them since we started in 2019 is these are actually cash flow behemoths that are living in plain sight. And there's a number of them that they're spitting off, you know, $200 million of revenue, $100 million of profit, and they're buying back their own token. Like if you were to look at that, you know, growing 500% a year, highly profitable and valued on like a 12 or 13x price to earnings, and that was in the traditional technology industry, they would not be worth as much as they are. They'd be worth four or five times that. So what we also represent with real world assets is sustainable value that historically, I think this industry has derived yield from maybe token emissions more so than sustainable returns, sustainable yield. I think real-world assets represents a shift back towards the sustainable. Okay, that's really interesting. And I guess speaking of profits and revenue generated by some of these DeFi protocols, you were talking earlier about the private versus liquid trade-off, depending on market conditions. I guess just to be clear, does Framework invest in liquid assets or do you guys only do early-stage private investments? We do both. Like I mentioned, especially over the last 12, 18 months, there have been a number of opportunities to buy these assets at well under fair market value, independent of the growth prospects that they have. We see those as major venture opportunities. Every investment that we make is still something that we have a venture thesis in. We are just independent in terms of whether or not we're buying equity or buying tokens from the team itself. And in many cases, these things have the Lindy effect of being launched in 2017, 2018, 2019, having lived through the 2021 boom and bust, have become hardened because of that. And they have the user base that's continuing to grow and continuing to succeed. Maybe they're charting a new path forward. And those are great opportunities for us to invest. But maybe it changes the dynamic in terms of how much we're investing. If we're investing at a multiple $100 million valuation versus a 10 or $20 million valuation, we need to buy more to be able to get the ownership targets that we want. But that's the evaluation that we're making. It's do we want to be buying 5% of protocol X or do we want to be buying 5% of unlaunched, unproven DeFi protocol that will launch in the next 12 months? Yeah, makes a lot of sense. So if there's, let's say, these protocols out there that I think you were saying are cash flow generative, and if they look more like traditional companies, maybe would be valued by the public markets at multiples higher. But do you feel like the crypto markets and the buyers of these assets will actually recognize these fundamentals and that delta between how these crypto assets trade versus similar traditional public companies might trade that have the same fundamentals? 
Do you see that gap narrowing or how do you feel about that? So there's two points that I'd use to answer this. The first is liquidity is something that enables basically like a fair price discovery. And we've been living through basically since the lunar crash in May 2022, we've been living through the times of the least amount of liquidity possible. So things don't look and feel and trade in ways that are fair value in many cases. Maybe things are slightly overvalued, maybe things are slightly undervalued, but generally think they have been off market in one way, shape or form. And so you don't necessarily need to assume that things will get there eventually, or you have to have new buyers that come in. I think as liquidity picks back up, things will naturally start to move towards direction of real true fair market value. Frankly, I think that that has started to change in the last few months, and I think it will continue to progress in that direction. The second component is, if you just take Ethereum, for example, Ethereum went through the merge in, I believe, September of 2022. Since then, it has burned over 250,000 Ethereum tokens. That's a massive amount. In today's prices, it's like 5 or $6 billion. What is happening with that is every time someone needs to use the Ethereum network, they need to pay a little bit of Ether, the bulk of that gets burned. So now we have an asset that through its protocol mechanics, it's a deflationary asset in a way that we just haven't ever seen a $200 billion plus asset with deflation built in. And so maybe it's not necessarily the requirement of we need more buyers to come in and have these things trade at par with where you'd expect traditional financial metrics to be. The protocol, in a lot of ways, takes care of that itself. And Ethereum has its own mechanics. A lot of these other DeFi protocols, some of them employ a buy and burn. Some of them buy the tokens and hold them in the treasury. But a lot of these mechanics are starting to look towards kind of traditional models of value distribution back to token holders whether it's a buy and burn and sort of like a stock buyback or potentially even a distribution of cash that's generated in the form of almost like a dividend. But these protocols are doing that themselves. And I'd expect that to be another trend that continues. Okay, that's really interesting. And speaking of Ethereum, or I guess maybe not speaking of Ethereum, so you guys, Frameworks and Investor in Gito Labs, as we're having this conversation, they quite recently announced the launch of their governance token, so I think your partner Vance described Jito as like a Solana version combination of Flashbot, which is a leader in the MEV space, and Lido, which is the most prominent liquid staking token platform, both more on the Ethereum side of things. So yeah, there's been a lot of talk around Solana recently, not just kind of the token price go up, but a lot more attention around the ecosystem as well. You know, is Framework interested in investing around the Solana ecosystem? And I'd say more broadly, just like investing outside of the Ethereum ecosystem, or you know, are you pretty heavily focused on the Ethereum side? I'd say historically, what has gotten the most attention in terms of developers and the most value in terms of what we call total value locked has been the Ethereum or EVM ecosystems that are built in and around or adjacent to the Ethereum mainnet. And basically, the history, as you would assume, basically everything in 2019 and 2020 was ETH mainnet. The problem with that was as people tried to cram transactions through, transactions for individuals were in the hundreds or thousands of dollars to be able to try and process an Ethereum transaction. That's just untenable. We developed L2s to be able to help scale that. We've also ported over Avalanche is another one that's an EVM compliant, EVM compatible ecosystem that's a separate main chain, and they have their concepts of L2s called subnets. And so the EVM component has spread out in like a diaspora of different ecosystems, leading to over 100x, and in some cases even higher, decreases in cost for usage. 
Solana is sort of its own separate ecosystem. It has the SVM versus the EVM. And to your point, yeah, Solana is a highly interesting ecosystem for development. And the analogy that we think of for these blockchains is somewhere akin to like a database technology meets an operating system where there's settlement in terms of like a database of where you're actually keeping this data and how secure is that. And then operating system, which is really aimed at developers of how are you executing, what technologies do you have to build these applications and what kind of applications, therefore, can you enable? Solana has a very different set of ecosystems around where we think the activity will aggregate on Solana. It's a much higher throughput, therefore low cost ecosystem than any of the EVM chains that we've seen so far. So maybe it's more aligned with like a social crypto or a consumer application category application founder. One thing that we do know is that liquid staking in MEV is always going to be a problem for every different blockchain that exists. And so Gito is just a very obvious bet for us. Also, the founding team is world-class in terms of where they come from, their view on the industry and where it's going. So we love to find founders like that. I'd say one thing that is maybe a little bit different from framework historically as well is that we definitely like certain ecosystems, but we're not beholden to one. But we definitely do like to invest at what I would call the middleware and the application categories. And so for us to get deeply involved within the Solana ecosystem probably means that we're investing in founders that are building applications or middleware in the Solana ecosystem. So another reason why Gito is a perfect fit. Okay, cool. You, know, you were talking earlier about kind of how globally focused you guys are, especially on the DeFi side, increasingly outside the US where founders are based. To your point, it'll be great when one day you can walk down the streets of San Francisco and see all your portfolio companies there. But people literally used to do that, right, in Silicon Valley and Sand Hill area, and people would only invest in things that they could drive to. In comparison, like, how do you actually cover such a broad geographic area in a proper way, given what's required in this space? We have a follow the sun model where one of us is always awake. I don't know. I'm kidding. (laughs) So in a lot of ways, it feels like the Web3 ecosystem is this massive globally distributed network of people and kind of certain hubs and different types of entrepreneurs. And in reality, it's actually a very small ecosystem and community relative, especially to a lot of the other technology communities that exist. And so I think a lot of it really kind of stems from getting to know people and being early in the space and building networks. The best references that we have for any new founders or people that are building new things are either people that have tried stuff before and maybe it didn't work or they pivoted into something new or existing founders that we've backed. And there's over 100 in the total framework ecosystem at this point. And they know somebody who knows somebody who's starting something really interesting. So that founder to founder reference are probably our strongest deal flow mechanism. And it means also showing up at conferences, being able to go to wherever permissionless or consensus or ECC or DevCon is going to be happening and just go spend time with people there because those are truly kind of rallying points for everybody in the industry. And then the other thing that we love to do is also just wherever people are, go and see them and meet them in person. And maybe it's not something that we're going to be able to do way ahead of time and maybe they're looking to raise before but as we start to get deeper into the ecosystem maybe even want to deploy labs in some way let's go spend time with them at their offices wherever they are and that's another thing that we love to do okay cool and obviously you guys have a broader team around you how big is the team these days on the venture side and the lab side yeah so on the venture side it's seven people we've got a team of seven ops and then labs is about four or five people at this point 
who are also doing some venture work and some ops work as well. So we don't necessarily think of it as three separate teams. It's really kind of all just the framework team, but everybody has kind of like a major and a minor in what they focus on. Yeah, makes sense. As you're talking about frameworks founders, kind of random question, but you guys have these like framework tent NFTs that I think (laughs) you give to your founders. I'm curious, I mean, is it just like a fun collectible that they can like, hey, we were backed by framework and they can have in their wallet or how is that received? And are there like perks that your founders get from having those or is it more just like a fun thing? At a minimum, hopefully it's something you can show off to your friends. Although I I don't know if it's the most (laughs) showcaseable thing for most people, but what it really unlocks is a digital knowledge base that we have where we're consistently kind of putting updates and perspectives. We've run a number of kind of like the minutia of getting started as a protocol. I think there's a ton of resources around like, okay, if you're a company, what lawyers are the best? And what financial services should you be using? What banking should you have? But when you're a protocol, those questions are actually very important because there aren't that many options and they're constantly changing. And so there's sort of just like best service providers. Then there's also things like surveys on compensation and what are some of the best in class practices there. We also have just like technology services and what infrastructure should you be running and what providers do we like the best. And then there's also all the things around, and especially it seems to be more so these days, perspectives on potential rule changes or regulatory changes, legislative changes. That's where we like to kind of share a lot of stuff there. And then we also have just like a framework founders telegram, which is updates and hey, here's this, check this out. So it's a pretty active telegram. And I guess the other one is just through the knowledge base, we have a major recruiting funnel and platform as well, where people are constantly posting new jobs and, and it's kind of like an internal place to do that. Maybe before you'd want to put that on your website or send it out publicly, we have had a lot of success with our recruiting partners and helping place people at all of the framework 10 members. Okay. That's really cool. Do you guys work with like a third-party placement group or is it all done in-house? Both. We have one person on the team that really helps coordinate or quarterback a lot of this, but we found a lot of success in probably three or four different partners that we have. In many cases, these are individuals and they just happen to know the industry really, really well and constantly finding success with them. And each skew in certain directions, maybe it's engineering and solidity design, maybe it's more product and sort of like web design. And in some cases, maybe it's like ops and business oriented hires or leadership hires. So it all kind of depends on what you're looking for, but we have the people to help. Okay, cool. So besides your cool framework tent (laughs) NFTs, what differentiates framework from other crypto VCs in your mind? Obviously, you guys have to go out, compete for deals, win deals. Those are often competitive processes, not always, of course, but why do founders want to work with you guys? I think it comes down to a couple of variables. The first is, frankly, Vance and I were entrepreneurs in the space before basically anybody else who's an entrepreneur now was in the space. So just having the track record and the ability to talk through, whether it's like founder therapy or being able to have like the conversations that you can only really have having had boots on the ground perspective. And the second is, Our fund size is purpose-built and our team size is purpose-built such that we take a very concentrated approach to the investments that we make. I mentioned earlier, but really what we focus on is ownership. And we want to make sure that every single investment that we make could ostensibly return the fund. And that's how we view it. And what that means is you're not 
getting one of the top dogs at a firm to sell you on some investment and then handing you off to someone else to kind of manage the relationship going forward. It means that you're getting me in advance or any of the other partners on the firm, on the investing team as your point of contact. And we're spending time with you probably more so than most other firms will. And then the third and probably the biggest one is just a track record of success. I think that there's a universe of entrepreneurs that want to work with investors that frankly know how to win. And that track record that we have, I think, speaks for itself, but then also attracts more founders who also want that. Just because we've seen these things before at this point, hundreds of models of concepts, whether it's token design or company building. And it's just a differentiation that I don't think you're going to find anywhere else at the early stage. And so, yeah, I mean, we're leading most of the deals that we do because of that. And if we have high conviction in something, we want to be the biggest investor in it. Awesome. Yeah, I think the concept of any deal being able to return the fund is really important. And I'm sure that the founder therapy has also been quite popular the past 18 months, given everything that's going on. So it's nice of you guys to offer that. (laughs) Yeah, it's it's an added service, but no, no, it's fun. It's hard. It's hard being in the space when nobody likes the space. And it's hard being an entrepreneur when things aren't going well. I'd also say those are also some of the best times. And the messaging that we have is these are going to be some of the best times of investing as well. Yeah, absolutely. So not everything always goes well. I mean, what would you say is the biggest mistake that Framework has made since you guys got going? And likewise, I mean, what's the biggest mistake you feel like you see some of your peers making or just something, you know, you see a a lot of peers doing that you think just doesn't make any sense? Yeah, great question. I think, frankly, we've been very lucky with the firm structure and strategy So far, a lot of the theories that we had going into building framework have proved to be correct. One thing that we did, we talked about this from a fund structure perspective. We had to change the fund structure of our first fund. It was actually structured originally as an open-ended structure because we thought it would be all liquid. And that was kind of the model that at the time most were doing. If you think back to it, Polychain and Paradigm both started with an open-ended structure. We were in that same kind of era and that was the way to do it at the time. And operational nightmare We've cleaned it up since, but that was one of the lessons and really kind of put us on a path to defining what the successive fund model would be at Framework and very happy that we got there. So maybe that's one of the structural things that we've done. I'd say one of the other things that we did and I think we're lucky with as well is just the timing of when we did fundraising. So I think a lot of other funds have maybe been six months or nine months before us or after us in different cycles and have been met with really difficult times in terms of fundraising or getting things closed or the sentiment around the industry, that timing has been just brutal in terms of like a few months can make a huge difference. And one of the things I was looking back at recently, it's just like when we started each fund, where were the prices of Bitcoin and ETH? And thinking through kind of like, timing these cycles. And like I said, they move in you know 7x the speed of anything else. So if you're one or two months different, it could be just a wildly different ecosystem that you're starting your fund in. So I think that's probably the biggest area that people have gotten stuck in. And then the other thing, which I think is something that we're continuing to work with, and I think we found a good model, is what's the fund size? So fund size dictates business strategy from an investor's perspective. And being dominant at the earliest stages, being able to do equity and liquid is something that we always want to do. But if you 10x the fund size, that definitely means it's a different strategy and structure going forward. So I think that's something that a lot of our industry peers are still trying to figure out. Yeah, makes a lot of sense. Yeah, definitely recall back in the day that the liquid model, the hybrid model being all the rage and 
Yeah, and there's kind of countless examples that I can think of of folks starting that way, moving to a closed-end fund over time. So definitely not surprised to hear that. Our CFO and everybody on the accounting team is very happy that we have moved in this, in this direction. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine. So on your website, not to put you on the spot here, but when you guys closed your last fund, or I guess you announced it in April of 2022, you put a blog post up in your website and it's still there. It includes a long list of operating assumptions that, according to this post, Framework utilizes with a target year of about 2030. So that'd be, I mean, at this point, like, let's say seven years away. So, you know, it sounds like a long time away. But I mean, you know, if you have a venture fund with a 10-year life, like it's really not that far away in terms of how you invest and the decisions you're making. So curious to run through a few of these and just like get your updated thoughts. If you still agree, if you look back and think, what the hell was I thinking? <laughs> feel free to do this as a, like a lightning round, or if you want to add any color, feel free as well. I'm just going to run through a few of these. So first one here, blockchains have one to three billion monthly active users. I still think that that's going to be the case with the caveat that the vast majority of them will have no idea that they're touching a blockchain when they're using some product. All right. Probably for the best. DeFi has 10 trillion in TVL, total value locked and remains the largest vertical by revenue and profit share. I still think that this is going to happen in the trillions. 10 trillion, definitely things have to turn out for the positive. The other thing is, like, what is DeFi at this point? Obviously, an ETF that sucks in a ton of value is probably not going to be considered TVL. But frankly, when we were thinking about this, it was more just like, what's the total value of things that are in financial products within Web3? And so didn't have ETF on my bingo card in March of 2022, but glad to see it now, hopefully in the near term. Yeah, we could get in a whole debate around TVL and how you measure DeFi metrics, but I'll I'll spare you that conversation. (laughs) So (laughs) DeFi spot and derivatives are larger than CeFi spot and derivatives. 100%. All right. This one's interesting. A medium-sized nation forks WorldCoin and takes the founder's cut. (laughs) Interesting. Well, I think... Something on the lines of in a civil resistant network will exist. I think if WorldCoin was to get to be the size of the aspirations of WorldCoin, there will be at least one nation state that says, no, we're going to do our own thing, much in the same way that we don't have a privatized version of passports. And think of this or the concept of WorldCoin as being a digital passport to represent you as an individual. I would imagine that this is still true. I'm laughing because of all of the OpenAI, Sam Altman backdrop more recently. But no, I, I still think that this is true. All right. Smart contract hack for 10 billion or more occurs. God, I hope not, but quite possible. One of the areas that we think is most interesting and definitely within what we consider infrastructure is security. We have a number of investments in the space, but there isn't really like a dominant model that makes sure that everything that exists on chain is safe. And I think as the size of the industry grows, the size of the hacks is going to continue to grow. But I really hope we don't see one, but I still think that this could be true. Yeah, I certainly hope you're wrong, though. So global policy on crypto shifts positively, manifesting, and I like this quote, Al Gore of crypto. I think we're actually already starting to see this. I think we're in a path of the bad actors are starting to be removed. And keep in mind, this was said before any of the blowups that happened in 2022. So I I think this one's actually pretty prescient. The blowups, I think, lead to regulatory changes in a way that doesn't kill the industry and is ultimately positive. 
the Al Gore comment is more of like, oh God, I can't remember the name of it, but it was the internet bill that I think it was in like 93 or 94. I think something like the Fit for the 21st Century Act that Patrick McHenry proposed in the House earlier this fall is closer to that, actually, and gives way for a definition of what is a digital asset that can shift from a security to a commodity, give studies for DeFi's and NFTs. There's a lot of positive stuff in that and still is working its way through. But I actually think that this one's probably one of the closest to happening just because of what happened in 2022 that we didn't know was going to. All right. So next one here, most SaaS businesses have their own L2 on Ethereum, replacing their public facing API. I also think that this is generally starting to happen. There's sort of like this narrative now and the L2ification of the world where every application in crypto gets to be big enough to become its own L2. And I think as we start to continue that thread, you're going to see some of the biggest businesses in the world develop their own ecosystems. There's also sort of this secondary or indirect component here of once we have that Al Gore regulatory moat, why wouldn't SaaS businesses want to have their own digital ecosystem, digital network, and potentially even their own token? And probably the best example here, they don't have a token yet, or maybe they never will, but look at Coinbase and Base. They were charging for SaaS infrastructure services. Now they just put it into an L2 network. Yep. All right. So I got two more here. Blockchains become the de facto venue for issuing sovereign debt. This is the real world asset thesis. It's funny because we've actually done the opposite so far, and we've got seven years left for this one, (laughs) but we've actually just taken sovereign debt and put it on chain. We went from in March 2022 to now, like I said, three to three and a half billion dollars of sovereign debt on chain. And that's by far the biggest financial asset that exists on chain, absent stable coins, but financial asset. I could definitely see a world where we start to see the reverse of that, where sovereign debt is issued on chain as the default and then sold through an ecosystem where blockchain is the backdrop. All right. So we'll call this at least directionally correct. Directionally. <laughs> with an updated view. All right. So last one here. Interesting, given what's been going on since you guys made these predictions. The most valuable assets on chain will be tokenized massive ML models, machine learning models. I would say probably not the most valuable. If I was to adjust this now, I think it's pretty clear that stable coins are by far the most valuable. And I think that they're just going to continue to suck up value and liquidity. And ML models, frankly, like we don't know how to value them. But if we start to move in the direction, and this is more of the AI, open AI commentary, but if we start to move in the direction of open AI needs to be decentralized, I think that this has a shot. What everything that's happened over the last like month and a half, maybe we're moving in that direction, but it remains to be seen. Awesome. Cool. Well, thanks for bearing with me through going through old predictions, which is always a fun exercise. One last question here. Nothing to do with crypto, but if you weren't running a venture fund, doing stuff in crypto, What else would you do with your life? What would you do for a living? Ooh, (laughs) if I was not working at Framework, honestly, I'd be an entrepreneur in the space. I think since 2014, 2015, seeing smart contracts as a new tech platform just has become a mind virus that I haven't been able to get out of. And if it's not investing in the space, it's going to be building. If it's not in this space, honestly, with the same perspective, I think actually architecture would be fun. If I was to go back and study a different subject in college, it probably would have been architecture. I find it fascinating combination of construction and art. And I think it plays to my desire to be building things and doing it in the physical world and is very different from doing it in the digital world. So I like the speed of iteration in the digital world a little bit better than the physical world, but I think it'd be fun to be doing that. 
Nice. So I guess when you were a kid building those popsicle stick bridges and stuff in school, those were top in class for you? Oh, I would come home from school and build Legos for like four (laughs) or five hours until I was told to stop. So I was a big Lego builder, but same, same. I like it. All right. Well, that's all we have time for today. So thanks so much for joining us, Michael. Really enjoyed the conversation. Appreciate you joining us. Yeah. Thank you, Brooke. This was fun. Thank you for listening to this episode of Inside the Hut with your host, Brooke Pollock. You can find this and other episodes on any podcast player or at our website, www.hutcapital.com.